Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Hello and welcome to another episode in our podcast series, Beyond Markets. My name is Hannah Wise and I'm a business journalist working with Julius Baer. And today I'm very happy to be joined by Natalie Wilkins, co-CEO at Thriving Talent for a special diversity and inclusion episode focusing on inclusive language and communication. Natalie, great to have you with us. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks for having me here. Now, in this episode, we are aiming to provide some tips and best practices to empower people to apply more inclusive language and communication, not just at work, but in life at large as well. But before we go any further, Natalie, what does inclusive communication and language actually mean? Well, simply put, Hannah, it's what we say and how we say it to make sure that everyone feels respected and included in all sorts of communications, conversations and discussions. And in contrast to that, when people are not being mindful of their communication approach and their choice of words, they can often unknowingly make others feel uncomfortable and excluded. So why is it so important then? Well, I I can assume that we both agree that language and communication has the ability to really build relationships and forge connections. And it's equally liable for creating barriers and impacting someone's sense of belonging especially at work. So when a majority of people at work are mindfully practicing inclusive language and communication, it really helps to create a work culture and an environment where everyone feels that sense of belonging. The way we communicate and the language we choose to use can help people feel like they can bring their full self to work without fear of discrimination or judgment. And as I said, when people feel they belong, it really helps to boost their engagement and well-being, whether that's at work, at school or in their relationships. And in a work-related context, it's not only good for the team they belong to, but also for the business. Okay, you've sold me on the positives to being a little bit more mindful about our communication and language. But I imagine it's easy to say, but harder to actually do in practice. What are the challenges that people typically face when communicating? The way I see it is that the challenge is twofold. Firstly, our language is nuanced. What that means is many of us don't realize that our language has an additional meaning hidden between the lines. And the changes we need to consider to make when we talk and write are often really subtle. And the second point is that when we're working in a busy environment, our communication approach will be flawed. We're not always taking the time to really consider what we're saying, but also how we're saying, so the nonverbal aspects and how that might be received. We're all so busy running around doing our work, we're not taking the time to slow down and, and be mindful. Mm, I can completely understand this. I mean, can you give us some examples of how this manifests then, Natalie? Sure. Let's take two very different examples. So I'm going to take one on inclusive language and I'll take another example on inclusive communication. So the first one on inclusive language, let's reflect on writing job descriptions and adverts. And it's funny because I've spent quite a few trainings this week on this topic with HR teams and line managers on just this topic. And so imagine you're writing a job description 
And when you're describing the job, especially the person profile that you're looking to take on that job, the use or the selection of the words that you pick can imply a certain age, a certain gender, perhaps educational background, or even your social class, and often so much more. And as part of my work, as I said, I'm training HR professionals and line managers on this, in particular, to pay attention to age-related as well as gender-coded language. So these are the words or phrases which are often associated with a particular gender, for example, specifically male or female. And often these genders are based on stereotypes. So let me get less technical. So for example, if you take a word such as competitive, strong, challenge, decisive, driven, even fearless, these are male gender-coded words or masculine gender-coded words. And then other terms such as collaborative, interpersonal, and patient are feminine-coded words. So when you consider what these words have in common, they're predominantly adjectives that describe personal attributes rather than the required outcomes of the job or the specific experience or skills that you might need. It's funny you should say this, and I'm sorry to interrupt here. It's just no it's problem to say that this week that you had been working with various companies to do this, and actually this week I noticed a job advert for the very first time that didn't say male, female. It actually said all genders welcome. That's just the very first time that I've seen this in action. So it's very interesting. But I guess it's deeper than just male or female when you're talking about all these different words and characteristics as well. Absolutely. And it's great to hear that you saw an advertising that all genders are welcome. I think that's such a huge progress, especially in Switzerland. And it's going beyond who you're looking for from the profile. It's also being mindful of the words and the words and the nuances those words can imply when you're reading it. So imagine you're a woman and you're reading a job advert. And all those masculine gender-coded words that I mentioned earlier are very present and repeatedly mentioned in the advert. The studies show that when you're reading that advert, your unconscious bias and sometimes even your explicit conscious bias is projecting those gender stereotypes when you're reading those descriptions. And it's very easy for you then to imply, oh, this isn't designed for me or this, this job wasn't meant for me. It's meant for a man. And the same can be said for someone who identifies as a man. You know, he would read a, an advert, and if it was heavily balanced on the feminine gender-coded words, he might not feel like he's the right fit either. And so it's really important to look at all of these words that you're picking, these adjectives that you're picking, and really challenge yourself. Is this something that applies to everyone, that everyone can identify with? Is this something that would make anyone feel excluded? And more importantly, and this, this takes it a little bit a step further, if I use this term in a job advert, can I realistically measure this? Can I prove that someone has this or not? What about inclusive communication? Is that different? Is that just choosing the right words, just verbally? It's 
A little bit of that also, as I said earlier, it's also thinking about how you say it, not just what you say. And I think one step further, it's about considering your audience. So let's consider an everyday scenario, which hopefully many of the listeners experience, which are team or client meetings, right? We all have these normally distributed throughout our working week. And Consider, for instance, the last time you were in a meeting and a leader said, okay, guys, let's get started. (laughs) Do you think that automatically made female colleagues feel a little less welcomed than their male peers? Would it have been better if the leader had said folks or everyone? I'm laughing because I completely relate to this because I say this myself all the time and I don't mean just the male side I mean everybody so I think this is something that I'm definitely going to have to uh, take on board personally going forward. I think it's cultural too you know in in the English language especially from the UK guys is a term that you can sweepingly use for any gender It, it doesn't necessarily mean just men specifically but for people from other cultures that might not translate so easily and so yeah we have to be a bit more mindful about it And added to that, consider the way a leader is running the meeting. So do they tend to give more speaking time to certain individuals over others? Are they tolerating perhaps inappropriate jokes or comments? And are they inviting and welcoming feedback and different perspectives during that meeting? So all that to say, it's really about, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it and how you manage that communication. Yeah, it's about listening as well as communicating, I guess. So I'm obviously going to go forward and kind of try to address my use of guys (laughs) as I go forward. But how can someone else practice inclusive language and communication? One of the other things that I have done consciously, and I think it's probably about the only thing I've done consciously is when I'm moderating events, I used to often say, good evening, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Now I just say, hello, everyone. And I've probably done that for about a year now. But I would say that that's the only thing I've consciously done. So what can someone do to practice this kind of inclusive language and communication? Well, I think your example is wonderful, Hannah. And I think that's a great tip for the listeners to pick up straight off the bat. And, and there you go. It seems like a very small, small, I don't know, concession, I think, though. And yet it's all about small incremental steps, right? It's not about going from where you are to perfect. And a a lot of us struggle with this perfectionism and needing to get everything right. And I think that's often what gets in the way of people even attempting to try. And you have to realize that you're not going to get it perfect from day one. It's just about adjusting and changing things slightly along the way. And to do that, as you said, it's requiring you to be mindful of your behavior and your actions and also to be open to feedback from others when they take the time to give you that feedback around whether your language or your communication style is inclusive or not. So for example, let's imagine you're preparing for a speech or presentation to your colleagues. So going back to this audience question, to what extent are you putting the audience first? and adapting your messages to their needs, their values, their interests, who they represent. And you might argue, well, this is presentation skills 101, right? (laughs) Of course, you're going to put the audience first, but it's important to take that extra step of doing a bit of research to understand who they will be and what do they care about 
and what's going to resonate in the way that you communicate and in what you choose to share. So really thinking about your language, your anecdotes, your references or examples that they're going to relate to and being mindful on could any of this offend someone? Would any of this make anyone feel uncomfortable? Because we're all approaching our communication with our own worldview, with our own perspective and our own identity. And sometimes it's great to even ask someone else to give you feedback on what you're planning to share, who's different to you, who can give you that different perspective and check and balance if any of this might go the wrong way. And then the other thing to think about is what are those underlying themes and values that brought the audience together to identify something that they have in common? So for example, in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we talk a lot about employee resource groups. So these are the volunteer groups that exist in companies who represent different groups of diversity. And so for example, if you're addressing them, then when you're presenting a company-wide initiative, it's important to probably directly reference how this initiative is going to impact the group's objectives. If, for example, the audience is a group of investors, it's a very different group, then they're going to want to hear about the same initiatives in terms of return on investment. And then if you think of a different type of group, for example, sustainably-minded consumers, you probably want to address the environmental impact of the initiatives for them to understand it and connect to it. So it's really about adjusting to your audience. Mm, I mean, that's certainly music to my ears. As a communicator, that's exactly what we try to do. But I know from experience, it's pretty hard to do in practice. So what kind of tips can you give? I think, as I said, it's really about taking the time to prepare and think and consider and apply some empathy put yourself in that person's position to understand what they might care about. The other tip relates to how you engage them. So like today, we're recording this podcast virtually. We're not together in physically in the same room. And many people are experiencing these types of interactions on a virtual basis day to day. So if you take example, virtual meetings, what is the platform that you're choosing to host these meetings on? Because this meeting is an opportunity to communicate between different people, but are you making it easy and accessible for everyone? And this is something really simple. So for example, if you're holding the meeting in one language, how are you adjusting to the needs of the non-native speakers? You you and I work in Switzerland, live in Switzerland, and we're not natives, certainly not by any means, and probably been in many situations where the native speakers, whether it's Swiss German, German or or French are the majority, right? But my German is certainly nowhere near good enough to be able to to join into the conversation. So how are they adjusting to my needs as a non-native speaker? And then if you think about those virtual platforms such as Zoom or Teams or any of the other ones, they typically provide AI-generated closed captions and not everyone knows about this. It's a, it's a free feature on the tool. But if you enable it, when different people are joining the team, then they can follow what's being said because they can either change it to their native language or the English closed captions or German or French closed captions helps them to follow a bit better, a little bit easier. And that's just such an easy thing for people to do. It really is. 
And maybe one more simple example, and this is an obvious one again, but it's worth reminding people about, is workplace jargon and acronyms. (laughs) (laughs) How many of those exist in Julius Baer on any organization, right? So think about it. How many do you have and use in your team or in your business? And how easy is it for everyone, especially newcomers or clients, to understand and follow what's being said? And then, of course, you've got, I mean, you touched on it earlier, the fact that not everybody speaks the same language either. And are some languages easier to adapt than others? I'm probably very biased here, Hannah, because I speak (laughs) fluent English. But I've heard this from non-native English speakers a lot. And they do tell me that the English language is really flexible and, and very expressive. So as a language, it, there's all sorts of ways you can say what you need to say without indicating anything that might be exclusive. The same goes for other languages which are more gendered. For example, the French language, it's typically distinguishing between the masculine and the feminine forms of pronouns And that then relates to many occupations and job titles. However, you can combine these forms into an inclusive form. Best, I think, for verbal or a contracted form, best for writing. So, for example, for verbal or for writing, let's take the company role of a director. So instead of picking the masculine term, which in French is le directeur, the epicent form, this is a technical language term, but the epicent form would be la direction, which is a, it's plural. It's, it's not related to a feminine or a masculine aspect. So, and the same exists in other languages, including German. So it really just takes a little imagination and empathy in practice. And it's like with any new muscle, once you start practicing, it gets stronger and easier. But Natalie, this can be a minefield for some people because they don't want to offend or hurt others. How can whoever's listening to this podcast overcome any of these insecurities or shynesses to discover more about the people with different identities and experiences? You know, how do we really kind of break through the barrier that's maybe holding us back right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I can imagine that a few of the listeners are thinking that maybe writing and speaking inclusively is going to feel really restrictive, like a Mm -hmm. set of rules, and that it's going to be hindering instead of helping them. In my experience, and others who've taken the journey to learn how to do this, it's really the opposite. Because when you're using inclusive language and communication, it really opens up and amplifies your message to more people. So whether it's your job description, your team meetings, even your marketing brochure or the icons that you pick for your website, you know, when you, when you take the care around that and it makes it more inclusive and accessible to all, it really reaches more people. And, and who doesn't want that? So if people are feeling insecure or shy to start, these are my top three tips. So the first tip is really to neutralize the gender. So when you're addressing theoretical people in verbal communication or even written communication, Use they, if it's in English, use they instead of he or she. It's really easy, especially in English. And when you're speaking, for example, to colleagues about family, try to use gender neutral labels for family members, such as parent, spouse, partner, child. Because when we 
continually reinforce certain stereotypes, especially in families, it can make others who have a different family constellation to feel uncomfortable to share about their own. But aren't you then kind of giving less information? If I said to somebody, oh, my child is sick today, they would then have to follow up and say, oh, is it your son or daughter? So if I say my daughter's sick today, it just gives the information. Or maybe you want to tell people about your marital status and you choose to say, oh, my wife or my husband. Absolutely. And you have that choice. It's not to say Mm. you can't do that. I think it's more about being sensitive to colleagues and people in the group who may not have that traditional family Mm, construct. And they often feel like they have to mask and hide who they are at work because maybe the majority has a traditional versus a non-traditional construct. Also, it's, it's not just about necessarily talking about your own family. It's about asking about theirs. Mm-hmm. So, for example, say you're talking to a colleague who has a partner who identifies as a woman. So they're both women. They both identify as women. So rather than implying or assuming that they're in a partnership with a man, which is traditional, it's, it's often where we go with, with the stereotypes, is rather than asking, oh, what is your husband called or what is yeah, your boyfriend called, is, you know, tell me about your partner. And it invites them to share something without you implying or assuming it's a certain gender. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. So that's your first tip, neutralize the gender. What about your second tip? Be careful. This is very specific. Be careful of medical conditions and ability terms. What do I mean by that? So a lot of us are living with invisible disabilities, just different physical situations or even mental situations that people are not aware of. Some of them are very visible and some of them are not. And it's important to be sensitive around the terms and the language we use so that we don't come across as being insensitive and ableist. Ableist is the, is a little bit like the word sexist. It's the same as sexist or ageist. It's ableist is that you have a preference for able people versus people who don't have the same ability. So common phrases like turning a blind eye. Now, I don't know if this exists in French and German and other languages, but it's quite a common one in English. And I've caught myself saying blind spot. You know, when you're not aware of something, I use the term blind spot. Where does that come from? But then if someone's listening, who's actually living and impacted by those medical conditions, how sensitive am I being when I'm using those terms? So, for example, instead of blind spot, say missed opportunity. Instead of crazy, use ridiculous or outrageous. And instead of walk through, which is very ableist language, use review or guide through. I'll tell you a very quick story that's connected to this second tip. It's an embarrassing story, but a huge learning for me. And I think that's what we all have to remember when we're trying to expand our knowledge around diversity and inclusion is you will make mistakes. Even when you're the expert, you're going to make mistakes and you have to own them and learn from them. So about five years ago, I was addressing a big group at a client conference and I was doing an activity in this presentation and I asked everyone to stand if they identified with something that I said. 
and there were a couple of people in the audience who were in wheelchairs. <gasps> okay. Everything I've just shared on this podcast, I made a mistake on. I assumed mm-hmm. there wouldn't be anyone who wasn't physically able to stand with their legs. And I didn't take that into account when I was preparing for my speech and for the activity. I could have simply said, please raise your hand. And I didn't. Let's move on to your third point. Okay. So just as with ability terms, now apply the same approach in terms which reinforce racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic prejudices. So here's a subtle example. The word blacklisting, along with whitelisting, reinforces the bias that black is bad and white is good. Are you familiar with those two terms, Hannah? Yes, yes. Yeah, they're not good. (laughs) We really have to keep them neutral. Mm -hmm. So I'd really encourage anyone to avoid terms that frame the person as a problem or the aspects of diversity that they identify with as a problem rather than challenging situation they find themselves in. So for example, a person with drug issues is a better way to describe than calling someone a druggie. Or people from low incomes or with low incomes is better than poor people. Does that make sense? Yes, it's it's about being more aware of who you're communicating to. And so this all comes from the side of the person communicating. So Let me ask you then, how can someone speak up if they hear inappropriate comments or if they hear that the communication wasn't inclusive enough? Ask yourself, is it content related? Is it a one-time incident? Or is it a pattern, which means it's a series of incidents? Or is it affecting the relationship? Is the impact of that pattern going to have an influence on your ability to work with that person or to be in relationship with that person. So whenever an issue is is really overt and egregious, you know, someone makes an intolerant comment, a content conversation works fine. As in, it's a one-off, you're going to address it. It's about something that they've said and they need to understand the impact. So you would address that to somebody directly then? On yeah, that. and... Depending on the culture, you might not do that in public. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You might wait until other people are not around and you do that in in privacy because that is also respectful for many cultures and it makes that person who said it feel less defensive when you give them the feedback. That gets harder, though, when somebody is more persistently, like when it is a pattern, it's harder. It must be much harder to just reach out. It does. And... I would argue a pattern is normally three instances or more than it's a pattern. It's a clear pattern and you need to start gathering data. You need to start noting down when it happened, how it happened, what they said, just for you to be able to also recognize and describe the pattern. So, for example, say your boss is repeatedly reaching out to other direct reports, but not you. And you've you've seen that happen three or more occasions where you should have been also contacted but you were excluded for whatever reason, you need to be able to describe those instances and draw that person's attention to the pattern. Because if you don't, the person's more likely to respond with you know, sincere explanations of one single instance. But when you can demonstrate that there's a pattern, hopefully it helps them to be curious as to what's going on for them too. Because often this isn't intentional. 
But being able to give those examples can be really helpful for the other person. And it's much easier to talk about it if you have examples. Absolutely. On the receiving end, if somebody came to me and said, you know, Hannah, you're not being very inclusive here, blah, blah, blah. And then if they, I would be like, of course I am. I'm completely fine. Yes, of course. But then if they actually gave examples, I would be like, oh, oh, right. Okay. Yes. And it'd be helpful for me to pinpoint that kind of behavior as well. So in the particular instances that I may have forgotten somebody or to do something, I think that's much easier to correct as well. And what about if it affects your relationship with somebody, like you can no longer work with them because of this? Well, hopefully it's not got to that point in the relationship, but you know, you start to feel a sense of resentment or your trust is effectively eroding when that continues to happen. And it can also affect your willingness to cooperate with the person and it can affect your own self-esteem. So whichever of those that you choose, you know, whatever that impact is having on you, again, using a constructive and an objective approach to giving feedback on the comments, whether it's a one-off or even a pattern, especially if it had an impact, is the key. So in a lot of the trainings, we train people on courageous conversation skills because it often requires courage and vulnerability to address this behavior. So I'll give you an example. Let's imagine some members of your team who speak native Swiss German have got into the routine of exchanging in a weekly team meeting where you're present on a weekly basis, as well as another colleague of yours who is not fluent. So imagine that scenario. If that's happening, it's becoming a pattern. And it's starting to affect the way you and maybe your colleague is showing up and contributing to that meeting. But it's important when you give feedback to really only represent your view and experience. Unless the other person gave you permission to do so, you really can only talk about it from your point of view. So, for example, you could say something like, I've noticed over the last couple of months that you prefer to speak German in the weekly meetings we have as a team. I care about contributing to the team discussions, and I'm increasingly finding myself feeling less and less comfortable and welcome to do so, because I don't always understand what's being said. It's as simple as that. It's two sentences. And it's quite interesting because you're saying it's not about you. You're talking only from your perspective. And I think that is very good. Yeah. And it, it does require a level of vulnerability. Mm hmm. Hopefully the way you've put the attention on yourself makes the other person feel some empathy and willingness to be open to listen to the impact that pattern is having on you. And so you can have a conversation about how this can become easier and for everyone in the team. Mm -hmm. Another way to deal with these situations is to ask questions. So asking the person to repeat themselves can be a really helpful way to subtly direct their attention to the inappropriate comments. And when they repeat what they said more consciously, it can help them gain some insights in terms of what they said and the impact it had. And you could also use other non-accusatory questions, such as, what did you mean by that? You're staying open and curious, and you're inviting them to do the same. Because when a person doesn't understand why something they said was offensive, it's also okay for you to give more details into why. It's not always easy to do, especially if you're angry. And it's really important to try and avoid being passive aggressive. But if you can be genuine and explain it to them and the impact it had on you, 
then not only will you feel heard, but it will also guide them into being more mindful about their language. Mm. So how can we then adapt our communication styles, Natalie, to different cultural backgrounds? And how does that nuance play out in some of the situations that we've talked about? That's a great question. I think cross-cultural communication is an important skill to master, especially in the business world. So the fundamental starting point is to do that research, learn about the cultural norms and adapt your communication, as well as avoiding the use of slang and keeping the language simple. Then if we think about the situation we were just talking about, where someone has said or acted inappropriately, the communication wasn't appropriate, it's really important for you to also assess that from the cultural context that you're in and stay curious and open to understanding rather than jumping to a judgment about the person. So especially if you're living and working outside of the country where you grew up, it's important that you you don't always have the facts to understand why people are behaving the way they are. And you can't assume that they're following the same cultural norms as your own. For example, when I used to work in Dubai, many of my colleagues were Arab nationals, UAE nationals. And doing my research before joining the company, I understood that direct and constructive feedback would often not be received well, especially if you did it in public. So you had to be private about it and you had to be subtle, a lot more subtle than maybe if you came from the UK. And so back then I was managing a large team and we were running a lot of interviews on site. And it's a very hot place, as you know, Dubai, is it can get very hot. And there's applicants waiting for their interviews inside, but also outside. And also the heat gets to the, the employees. You know, everyone gets hot and bothered, <laughs> especially in the summertime. So on one occasion, I overheard a colleague speak very rudely from my perspective towards an applicant. He wasn't making this person, I think, on anyone in earshot of that matter or anyone around them, feeling that he was welcomed and respected. That was my point of view. But I chose to not address this in public with him and to reserve my judgment and to talk to him when he went on a break. And on his break, I took the opportunity to pull him to one side and ask him what had happened for him to react like that. I was genuinely curious, trying to reserve my judgment. In in this situation, I I was what we call a classic bystander, someone who's witnessed something and chosen to speak up after the event. But I did it in a way that was respectful in the context of the culture of my colleague. And he really appreciated having the conversation. He didn't realize that his outburst had had the impact it had on the applicants, on me, And I think he was much more open to that feedback because of the tactful way that I brought it up. Mm -hmm. And just as we kind of wrap up our conversation, Natalie, you have given us so much food for thought. I worry about everything I'm going to say now, but I really hope you're going to tell me that I don't have to achieve everything all at once. Absolutely not. (laughs) As I said, it's really about step incremental change in habits and in our behaviours. If people only start with saying hello, everyone, instead of good morning, ladies and gents, that's a really great start. Honestly, it's not about getting this perfect. It's about doing your best to be aware, to be conscious 
and make small adjustments along the way. And if you can do that, then you're widening your message and you're allowing it to resonate with so many more people than before. Thank you so much, Natalie. I'm going to try now to think positively and forward thinking rather than going back over the the conversations I've had this week and thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I'm going to try and, and put it in a positive term. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me and good luck to everyone in practicing inclusive communication. Thank you. Well, that is all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And on behalf of all of us at Julius Baer, thank you for tuning in and goodbye. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favourite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.